So let's just remember together where the story begins. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the earth shall be blessed. All of the earth shall be blessed. And so one of the things that we see at the very beginning of our story that is uh, the basis for our entire time in the life of Abram is that God's goodness, God's grace, God's favor, God's provisions to Abram, God's promise to Abram is based on God's goodness, God's grace, God's love for him, not Abram's worthiness of God's grace, of God's goodness, or of God's love. And so that should be encouraging to us because most of us are aware that we're not worthy of it. And so hopefully as we go through uh, this story, as we go this journey of the life of Abraham, we become increasingly convinced that the same God who called Abram, the same God who was near to Abram, who called him and went with him, is the same God who calls us. And that that God didn't give up on Abram and that that God doesn't give up on us. So in chapter 12, we see the the beginning. We see that God calls Abram based on God's character. And then Abram gets out the gate really slow, okay? If, you, if you're a baseball fan, this is like taking a big swing and you crush the ball to the outfield and then you fall on your face trying to get out of the batter's box and crawl down to first base. Abraham stumbles and falls really quickly. And what's neat is we saw last week, uh, with Ricky sharing from chapter 13, that there starts to be evidence that Abram is growing in his trust and in his confidence that there is a good God who is at work in and through his life and his circumstances, and that good God is bringing about these promised things that he said. And so in chapter 13, when Abram's nephew Lot, who really should have never been on this trip, when his herdsmen are fighting with Abram saying, we need more pasture, we don't see... Abram come and say, I'm the president of the company, you're the intern, park in the back. Okay? Abram instead goes to Lot and says, have your pick of the land. And and so a lesser man, a less confident in God's plan man would have said, God has promised me land, not you. God has promised me lineage, me a legacy, not you. you. You can go over there. You can go in the back. You can go to the desert, see how your animals do there. This is my land. No, we see evidence that Abram is trusting that if God's promises are going to come from the character of God, then the fulfillment of those promises is going to be contingent on the power and the plan and the timing of God. And so we see evidence that Abram is is taking steps, is growing in his trust, in his confidence of God, even though at times... It's going to be hard to see. And, and so it kind of reminds me of those 3D images. Has anyone ever seen those 3D images? They were cool a long time ago. They had big books, and what you do is you'd open it up, and there'd be a pattern on a page, and it would not look like anything discernible to the naked eye other than a pattern of colors and lines, and then there'd be instructions. And the instructions were to essentially hold the picture you know, two inches away from your nose so that it was so blurry so that you couldn't make out anything, 
and you stare through the image, and if you stare through the image long enough and start to back away from it, a three-dimensional image lifts off the page, and it's really neat. And so you can't see it initially, but you know the object is there, so you keep looking. And so we see that sort of thing happening with Abram. He can't initially see what God is doing. It doesn't initially make sense, but we're seeing evidence that he trusts that the object is there. He trusts that God is working. He trusts that God is going to bring about the things that he promised. And so he's able to act and to think confident in the trust that he has in God. I want to ask you this morning, are you confident that God can work out his good plans in and through your life? Are you confident that God can do that? Because some of us are facing joblessness and we don't feel that God can work out his plans in and through our life until he fixes our joblessness. Some of us are facing pretty significant health concerns and we don't feel like God can work out his good plans for his glory and our highest good until he fixes this health issue. Some of us have some very fractured relationships with parents on Mother's Day, with moms, Uh, with a spouse, with kids, with siblings. And we don't think God can work out his good plan in our life for our highest good and his glory until he fixes those relationships. So I just want to ask you this morning, do you believe that God can work his plan in your life? Or do you believe your joblessness, your relationships, your sin is too big that he cannot overcome that? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to start in the first few verses and we're going to see the insurmountable odds that Abram's up against. And I hope God's power in Abram's insurmountable odds gives us encouragement that God has power over the insurmountable odds in our lives as well. The first 11 verses record two battles. And you have a whole list of kings and names and locations And they don't make a bunch of sense, except that they're kind of in and around the Dead Sea. And there's four kings against five kings. And the one group of kings wins. And one of the kings in the winning side is named Shador Lamar. You can pronounce it however you like. Uh, But there's two battles. And in the first battle, Shador Lamar is listed essentially as a footnote, one of the kings in the battle. And in the second battle, at the end of that cluster of verses... Shadalamar is listed as the leader of those kings. And so the first 11 verses establish that this is the guy you don't want to mess with. This is the guy who's the biggest, baddest dude in town uh, of the kings of this region. And this is who Abram is going to find himself aligned against. Let's pick up in verse 11 following the second battle. Genesis chapter 14, picking up in verse 11. just after the second battle. Here we go. Verse 11 says, So the enemy, talking about Shador Lamar, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, those are two of the cities that were against him, and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Verse 13, Then when one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Let's pause at the end of of 16. The first 11 verses build the foundation that if you are aligned against Shador Lamar, you don't have a chance. Okay, This is an underdog story. And, and I want us to see that insurmountable opposition requires divine intervention. Insurmountable opposition, Shador Lamar, requires divine intervention. The first 11 verses build the idea that if you're aligned against him, you don't stand a chance. And so uh, as we just get into the start of this text, I, I just want to maybe pause and See if we can make this uh, real in our present day circumstances. Where do you feel like you don't have a chance? So for some of us, it's seeing God's kingdom advance here on earth. Seeing God's kingdom advance in our community, in our county, where we live, in our, in our own homes. And so we know verses like Matthew sixteen eighteen. Right where, where Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to build my church on you and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This thing's going to succeed. This thing is going to win. And some of us see what goes on in culture and, and despair, believing that God's kingdom is not advancing. God's kingdom is not winning. God's purposes are not being accomplished on earth. And so regardless of who the president is, God's kingdom can advance here on earth, regardless of whether or not the Bible, prayer, morality, the Ten Commandments are allowed in school, in courthouses, in the political realm, in the marketplace of ideas, in the blogospheres, whether they're invited there or rejected there, God's kingdom can advance. Do we believe that he has power over culture? Do we believe that he has power to change culture? Some of you are familiar with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, where uh, verse 13, Paul says that, that God will provide a way out of our temptation. Some of us feel like we do not have a chance against our temptation. And we look back at a pattern in our lives of giving in over and over and over, and we fight against a specific temptation. We fight it over and over and over, only to fail in a new and spectacular way again and again and again, and despair and guilt and shame sets in and we feel like we don't have a chance. As if insurmountable odds are not bad enough, Abram's insurmountable odds are self-inflicted wounds. We could spend a lot of time here, couldn't we, on self-inflicted wounds? Remember, God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and says, leave your father's house. Leave your kindred. And what does Abram do? says, yeah, but my brother's son needs someone to look after him. And my brother's son, uh, he's going to get all squirrely if he doesn't have a good influence around. My brother's son needs me. And so he brings Lot. And what I love is a fairly significant portion of Abraham's narrative includes Lot and the pain and the suffering that's brought into Abram's life because of Lot. And so we're reminded that our partial obedience and our outright disobedience has lingering consequences, doesn't it? They linger with us. 
And so that tends to be something that beats us up. That tends to be something that crushes us. That tends to be something that the enemy uses to, to beat us down and say, see, you're not useful to the Lord. You mess everything up. It's not one-time thing. That's what you do. That's who you are. And, and so one of the really spectacular things we see in the life of Abraham as Lot resurfaces and resurfaces and resurfaces pretty much always in some sort of with some sort of negative connotation is that God's work in our life often happens with our baggage happens with our lingering consequences happens in and through our self-inflicted wounds happens in and through our poor choices where he meets us doesn't run from us doesn't distance himself from us doesn't give up on us doesn't abandon us but meets us there in those places and says i'm still here i still love you because my love comes from who i am not because of your worthiness of it As if insurmountable odds are not bad enough, Abram's insurmountable odds are self-inflicted wounds. We saw in chapter 12, Abram run from Egypt, run from King Pharaoh when he was afraid. And what, what does he do now? We see Abram in chapter 14 against Shadar Lamar. He's going to gather his men, his 318 men, uh, with a few allies, and they're going to go after this king. They're going to go after this established, credible threat. They're going to go after the biggest, baddest dude in town. And he doesn't even seem to think about it. And so we're seeing the evolution. We're seeing the progress, the growth, the maturity of Abram. And one of the neat things to kind of reflect on is all that's really happened is Abraham has made a mistake. God's met him there. And Abram seems to emerge with greater faith, with more confidence, with greater trust. And, and so for those of you that are maybe in a season right now where all you can see are your glaring weaknesses, all you can see are the way that you have fumbled the Lord's plans, he set it up perfectly for you and you've made a mess of it, look at what happens with Abram as the Lord meets him in this moment. And look at the faith, look at the pattern of trusting God that seems to come out of that where he realizes he's loved not just for what he can do, but because of the perfect love of God, uh, because of the character of the God who called him. Let's continue. Ricky made a point last week. He said, um, when you follow God, it's about direction. It's about not about perfection, right? And so Abraham follows now with direction, not perfection. Abraham, uh, Ricky made another point. He said that when you have faith, as you follow the Lord, it changes the way you see everything. And so Abram's starting to see things differently with a confidence that God is at work and a realization that his battle is not against flesh and blood. His battle is not against Lot. His battle is not against even these kings. Um, some of you are familiar with Ephesians 6.12. I'll read it. Ephesians 6.12 says this. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And, and so the, the thing that comes back to us is to 
begin to not see our obstacles, whether they're relationships, whether they're financial, whether they're health, whether they're emotional, whatever they may be, and, and to start to see that our issues start with our relationship with God and the finances are secondary, the relationships are secondary, the job is secondary, the circumstances are secondary, the people are secondary. When that happens, we start to be able to walk the path God has for us without needing to make sense of it all, without needing to be right, without needing to be recognized for who we are, for what we are, for what we've done. And we see Abram start to hold loosely. And we see Abram now run into battle, run into danger, run into an underdog situation where before he would have run. Where before he would have run. What does it look like to walk the path that God has put before you and to not try to make sense of it all? What does it look like to walk the path before you with friends and family members that you're praying for without trying to force them to get their act together, without trying to force them to do everything just as you would have them? What does it look like to walk the path God has for you even if the conflict at work doesn't go away, even if the conflict at work gets worse, even if the conflict at home gets worse? What does it look like to be faithful to the plan that God has for you I don't think that Abraham wanted to charge into battle. And if I were Abraham, I would have said, not my fault. That was Lot. He shouldn't have gone to Sodom. I told him not to. Good luck. As you think about what it looks like to walk the path that God has put before you, for me, reflecting on this text, uh, brought to mind uh, a time with my brother. And and I've mentioned my brothers before. and, And... In the context of Mother's Day, it would be very fitting to say that I have a spectacular mother who loves all three of us, even though we are wildly different. She must think that we're nuts, but she loves us anyway. We don't call as often as we should. We aren't as grateful verbally uh, as we should, and she loves us anyway. I have two brothers who could move to Africa in like 30 minutes advance notice at any moment for no apparent reason, just because they want change. And... I'm the one who never wants to change and thinks change is a swear word. My mom doesn't get us, and she loves us anyway. She has two sons who are very emotive, and she gets too much communication from them. And she has one son that doesn't really know what emotions are all that well, and she doesn't get enough communication from him. She, she loves us anyway. She loves us in spite of how wildly different we are. She loves us in spite of the the fact that we're not as grateful as we ought to be. She doesn't remind us how often she wants us to call and our shortcomings. She doesn't remind us of her sacrifices. She just loves us anyway. But uh, in thinking about my brother, I, I recall a significant season of his life, and he had a rough go of high school, middle school, college, and around there. I've shared some of the high highs, some of the low lows, And I think about my time at Biola. He was at school in Fullerton, which is about 15 minutes away. And I did so much to try to, in some way, have some sort of positive influence. Whether it be phone calls, whether it be inviting him over to get away from his friends, which was a very good thing, and to be around my friends more, which was also a very good thing at the time. So many conversations, so many times picking up the phone when I really didn't want to pick up the phone, and nothing ever seemed to come of it. Until, two or three years later, he comes up to 
uh, Multnomah and spends about a, sec, uh, a semester there. Uh, and 900 miles away from me, the Lord gets a hold of his heart. And so what's my part? Just walk the path that God has for me. We had a, a vacancy in our condo at the time, five stinky guys and a cat. Uh, and I say, I call him and say, we have a spot. You should move. You should, you should take it. And he does. And was anything different there? Did we have any great heart-to-hearts? No. Did we talk? Yeah. Did we talk about life? Yeah. Did we talk about what was going on? Yeah. Did we talk about direction? But I didn't say any wise words. I didn't do anything that was especially profound. There was no elaborate plan in place. But God was talking, and he was listening. And so something as inconsequential as saying, we have a spot, we need to fill it, I don't want to pay more rent, you should come, this would be good for you and good for us, turns into something that is is a significant and pivotal redirecting point uh, of his life, and and he's pastoring in Eugene now, and, and he would go back to that season, that summer, and say, Living with five stinky dudes was the period of life where God got a hold of my heart and redirected everything. And and so I could look at that and and try to parse it down and try to take credit for something, but there's nothing I can take credit for. God did the work. We can look at Abraham's life and we can try to parse it down and say, what did Abraham do? How can I imitate that? We're going to see with Shadalimar, God did the work. God called Abram. God went with Abram. God's power in his life was a function of God's goodness, not Abraham's worthiness of it. And God does the work. David captures this well in Psalm 60. Some of you just love the Psalms. It's without a doubt my favorite book in the Bible. In chapter 60, David just whining. He does that a lot. He's just whining. Oh, woe is me. Where are you, God? God, it almost seems like you're helping my enemies. And then at the end of chapter 60... He says this, 10 verses of whining, and then 11. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. David doesn't say, God, send help. God, make sense of this for me because I don't understand. God, fix all this. He says, God, I want you. I don't want help from men. That is short-lived. That is vain. It is futile. It won't last. David says, I want you. And so as we see and observe the life of Abram together, I hope that what we say is, I don't want to just imitate Abram. I don't want God just to fix my situation and fix my circumstances. God, I want you. And whatever it is you want to do in this, I want you and I, and I have this confidence in who you are and your trust and your goodness. I want you. Do what you will. Let's pick back up in in Genesis 14, uh, verse 17. This is when Abram returns from war, victorious. Uh, Most of us, when things go well, when God blesses us, maybe our chest gets puffed up a little bit, maybe we walk a little bit higher, look what we did, we're inclined to take credit. We often are aware that it's much harder to handle success than it is to handle failure. It is much easier to become puffed up and arrogant in success than in failure. It is much easier to be a glory hog in success than it is in failure. So will we see Abram continue to progress? 
Will we see Abram continue in this direction? Or won't we? Here's verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Shadorlamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Uh, then in parentheses it says there, he was the priest of God most high. Verse 17, and he blessed him, this is Melchizedek, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. There it is again, God doing the work. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Verse 21, re-enter king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, you saved our lives. You can have the stuff. Just, just give me my people back. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Enner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. We see two different responses, don't we? We see um, the king of Sodom on one hand and this king Melchizedek, and we'll get to him in just a second. But with regards to the king of Sodom, we see the insurmountable opposition requires divine intervention. And the second point today is, is simply that the insurmountable opposition leads to divine recognition. So the king of Sodom sees the power of God, sees a faithful man of God, and wants nothing to do with it. The king of Sodom essentially offers Abram the bare bones minimum that would be expected in a situation like that for the day. Doesn't humble himself, no over-the-top show of gratitude. At least Melchizedek comes out with food and wine, something to drink, something to eat for the guys as they've been traveling, as they've been carrying all this stuff, as they've been in a hard-fought battle. King of Sodom says, here, take this, give me mine, and we'll go our separate ways. And, and so his response is not an indictment on God's power. It's not an indictment on Abram's faith. It's an indictment on the wickedness of his heart, isn't it? And that wickedness is going to lead to some pretty terrible things. It's going to lead to the destruction of his entire town, of his entire community. Contrast that with Melchizedek. Where faith is present... A movement of the Lord builds up God's people, encourages God's people, instills faith and confidence in God's people for God's work in and through their own lives also. That's why he says, And blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Not well done, Abram. You notice in, in Genesis 14 it says, Abram divided his men at night, and so there's um, the assumption that, that Abram came up with a good plan, that Abram had a good strategy for taking down the superior foe. Not only a good strategy, but he executed the plan well, right? You can have a good plan and execute it poorly. Abraham seems to be a pretty competent war general here. And what does Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, say? Blessed be Abram, who was blessed by God, and blessed be God most high. And what does Abram do? Abram gives him 10% of everything 
and Melchizedek blesses him. I want to pause for Melchizedek and and turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 7. Melchizedek is an interesting fellow. There's not a whole lot written about him in the Old Testament. He shows up here. He shows up in Psalms 110 and then a whole bunch in the book of Hebrews. But I want to pause with this character for just a minute because some people would say that that Melchizedek is actually a pre-incarnate Jesus, that Melchizedek is actually... Jesus in the form of man in the Old Testament. And so that's, that's quite a thing to say. And, and so I want to just pause and look at the text of Hebrews and look at the text here in Genesis just a little bit to give us a sense of who this guy is, why he might show up for like three verses in Genesis 14. What would be the significance of that? Why would the Lord preserve this text this way with this brief mention of this pretty significant fellow. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7 if you have your Bibles. Let me, I'll read the first couple verses and then, then just sort of pause. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, we're just starting in verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, talking about Melchizedek, and then he is also king of Salem, which is to say, king of peace. So so first, right, culturally names are a big deal. These are like titles, right? So if you're the president of your company, that title president shows status, right? If you're president of the company, that title also shows to a degree your function. And so the title and the function here of Melchizedek, the status of Melchizedek is king of righteousness and king of peace. And many believe that Salem would go on to to evolve and to become Jerusalem. Picking up in verse 3 of Hebrews, it says, he, again, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, genealogy is a big deal in Genesis, right? That's why many of us have a hard time with parts of Genesis and in parts of the Old Testament. It's because genealogy is a big deal. And if you are someone of significance, you come from someone of significance. So if there's no genealogy, no record of your birth, no record of your death, no record of where you came from. That is unusual. To have the author of Hebrews say that he resembles the Son of God and, as, and he continues as a priest forever, ah, that's a big deal. Let's continue. Verse 4 of chapter 7. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, Abraham's kind of it. He's kind, he's kind of a big deal. He's the one that they all go back to. He's the one that we look to as the father, Father Abraham. There's a song about him that we still sing, that people know. See how great this man was, whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, referencing Melchizedek again, who does not have his descent from them, 
received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior Abraham, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior Melchizedek. So here in Genesis 14, in the midst of this story, which seems to many of us kind of a throwaway in some sense, Abraham rescues his knucklehead nephew, Lot. Eh, he beats some kings. He was outmanned. He was an underdog. That's cool, but God's done that kind of thing before. And here, in his return from war, we see this tiny little collection of sentences that talk about Melchizedek. And so maybe a question that we might ask is, what on earth is that there for? And, and is that really Jesus? And so I, I would suggest that, that that's something that we could disagree about, and probably in a room this size, many would disagree. I tend to not think that it was Jesus in the flesh. I think that, that Melchizedek does what much of the Old Testament does, is point forward, look forward, um, build anticipation for, build a frame of reference for understanding the significant and the identity of the Messiah, of Jesus. But, but consider this. Uh, Melchizedek is described here as a king and a priest. And then under the Levitical law, those, those things are separated, right? And so you don't have kings who are priests. You don't have priests who are kings, right? David and Saul really... They kind of get this muddied a little bit, and it doesn't go well for either of them. And so here we have an example tucked away in Genesis 14 that starts to shape our understanding of what the Messiah will look like so that when Jesus comes and is a both king and priest who is not from the tribe of Levi, who is not a Levite, but is... Messiah, by virtue of his power, uh, I'll read Hebrews uh, 7, 16. It says this regarding the Messiah. This becomes even more evident when another priest, Jesus, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, in other words, not from genealogy, but by the power of an indestructible life. And so we can go back to Melchizedek and see someone who was king priest whose beginning and end is not recorded and it paints a picture of the Messiah who is yet was yet to come at the time Jesus as king as powerful ruler as conquering hero and priest as mediator between God and man who would live who would reign who would rule eternally And the contrast is these Levitical priests who could not make people holy but could only make atonement for sins for a period of time. And Jesus, the perfect high priest, who lives and reigns and rules eternally, who has the power to make us truly righteous before God. And so tucked away in Genesis 14, we see this shadow, this pointing forward to the Messiah, this case-building anticipation for the need for Jesus to come, for the need for Jesus to not be of the Levitical line, for the need for Jesus to be king and priest and to rule and to reign forever. This Melchizedek in in verses 19 and 20 of Genesis uh, 
14, he says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies out of your hands. This is what we want people to say about our lives. When people see your life, when people see my life, what we want them to say is, Blessed be God most high, because we can see his working in you. And blessed be you, not because you're so charismatic, such an eloquent speaker, such a great leader, such an intelligent person, such this, that, or the other, such a great mom. But blessed be God most high who blesses you. Blessed be you because of his blessing in and through and on your life that people would see God in us. So as we, as we look at Abram and as we talk about what does it look like to learn from and imitate and what is worth imitating, we just want to keep coming back to this idea that insurmountable opposition requires divine intervention. And that's a really good thing because the more insurmountable the odds, the more glory goes to the Father, the more our faith is transformed, the more we become pure reflections of Jesus, the more our confidence in who he is and his ability to work in and through us grows And the more this sort of thing happens, where people see Christ in us. You won't find too many instances in Scripture where people see Christ in Christ's followers and there's not some sort of difficulty involved. And so, if you're here this morning and insurmountable opposition takes the shape of a face, Insurmountable opposition takes the shape of news that you know to be true about uh, your financial, your health, your relational well-being. If all you can think of are all the reasons this shouldn't work out, and maybe it's your fault. Maybe like Abraham, you brought this upon yourself, and you say, you know what? I'm kind of resigned to this because I kind of did it to myself. So, So what can I do now? I would encourage us from the life of Abraham to walk the path that God has for us faithfully and to do so with the trust and the confidence that he's working in and through our lives, in and through our circumstances. Our circumstances, our relationships aren't random. Our circumstances and our relationships aren't without purpose. Our circumstances and our relationships aren't something that are bigger than God, right? He can redeem them. He can work in and through them. He can use them. He can leverage them. And that we might become confident that his goodness to us overflows out of his character, not our worthiness of it. So that we can turn back to him as loving father, not as guilt-ridden, shame-driven, defeated people. That like the son returning to the prodigal, that we can run into his arms, seeing how he's treated his own, seeing how he's treated Abram, trusting that he sees us, works in us, calls us, leads us, and goes with us in the same way. Let's pray. Lord, I I confess that what I really want to do when things are difficult is run. What I want to do when things are difficult is find someone to point the finger at so that I can, in a sense, relieve myself or dismiss myself of ownership or of burden or of guilt or of shame. 
So I pray, Lord, that you would make me and I pray that you would make us a church of people that run into difficulty, not because we're reckless and foolish, but because we trust that you're bigger than our difficulty. We trust that you have power over our difficulty. Lord, that our confidence in you, our confidence in your goodness, our confidence in your power would be so great. Lord, that there would be peace in our hearts in spite of all of the unanswered questions we have. There would be joy in our hearts in spite of the fears that we have. Not because our circumstances aren't difficult, not because our pain isn't real. The Lord, because we've learned that we got a big God. And it's not our worthiness, Lord, that brings your favor, it's yours. Teach us to come to you, Lord, as ones who are adored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.